Amen, amen. Good evening, everyone here and uh, online. Welcome to Wednesday night. As you're settling in, I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to be taking 1 Samuel chapter 31 to finish up the first uh, the, the book of 1 Samuel. But I want to read an, uh, another scripture since we're in the uh, time of Advent, a reading that comes out of uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, on uh, Zechariah's anticipation of the Savior that the Lord had given him these words of that anticipation uh, through this line, through this family, uh, and uh, um, an encouragement to Zechariah, and may it be encouragement to us as we see hindsight, the Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, coming. As, as we sang tonight, I speak Jesus. And uh, we see here God was speaking to Zechariah about the coming Jesus. Amen? So here in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 67 through 79, it reads as this, as you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remissions of their sins and through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who will sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Father, we thank you and praise you. And as we open up your word this evening, as we see even here in Luke, as you speak to Zechariah about his son paving the way and of the Savior to come, we look with great anticipation of you, Lord Jesus, coming back for your bride and taking us to heaven. We are looking forward with great anticipation over all of these hundreds and hundreds of years, Lord. 2,000 years, Lord, over 2,000 years, Lord, we are looking for your return. And as we see in your scripture, we see in the days we live in, we see we're getting closer and closer of your return for us. We look with great anticipation of that. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take a look here this evening in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, the title that I've made here is Defeat and Disgrace. It's actually a very sad 
part of this story in the fact that we see two prominent men, King Saul being defeated and in, in, in disgrace. We also will see David really defeated as well and, and ending a, a season of his life in disgrace actually. But God is going to lift him up from that moment where he finds himself in the enemy camp and then bringing him to a point of coming back to his family and seeing, as we saw last week, the enemy coming in and taking his family and all 600 of the men's families and all of their things. But God, out of his grace and mercy, rescues and recovers all. If you remember, as we take a look at the very end of uh, chapter 30 there, um, that we see God promised to him to go and to, uh, to catch up to the enemy. And when you get there, you're going to take them out and you will also recover, recover all. But that's God's grace and mercy because he actually uh, took this bad decision of David and turned it into good for those who love him. And we do know that David has a heart after God's heart. And we see that God's going to turn this around. And we will now see here in chapter 31 the final aspect here of, of and the end of Saul's life and, uh, and the start of a new beginning in David's life. Let's pray again and we'll get right into this. Father, we again, as we, we need your Holy Spirit right now just to open up your word to us and speak to our hearts. Using your word, Lord, just speak to our hearts personally and help us to understand you more clearly and deepen our relationship and our love for you as we come to the understanding and grips of the fact of how much you love us first. So we again, have your way, Lord, this evening. Mold us and shape us. Transform our minds with the, by the reading of your word this evening. And may it change our hearts and how you need to have them changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we started with Saul's failure to obey. He started to disobey God. And it started back when God told him to go in and, and wipe out the Amalekites, which he chose not to fully obey. And that was the start of Saul spiraling down into darkness and choosing very bad decisions out of emotions and, and uh, every kind of emotion that he has gone through. And especially when Saul's envy and jealousy settled on a man's life named David. Because when he disobeyed, God said, your kingdom, that's it. You don't listen, you're not obeying, I'm taking that away, I'll give it to another man, a neighbor of yours. Called, He didn't say David, but it ended up being David. He knew it was David. And that's when the envy and jealousy started setting in because God was in David's life. And, and as they went into battle, God was using him more mightily than King Saul. 
This just made Saul much more squirrely in his mind, and he became very paranoid and very dangerous. Not only paranoid and dangerous about David, but everybody and anything around him. And that's what will happen when you go squirrely in the mind. That you've disobeying God and your envy and jealousy and bitterness and these things will cause a man or a woman to go in their not their right mind. Paranoia and, dis, and, dis, and dangerous and all kinds of things will come from their lives because they're not right with God. We also see Saul had some good qualities. We saw good qualities in Saul, but none of them were of a humbled spirit and none of them were an obedient faith in God. Because of his pride and his disobedience, Saul will lose everything. And we will see the end of his life here in this chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And it starts here in verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilibo. So we see here, just in this very first uh, verse, if it reminds you, it goes back to where we pick back up in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where the Philistines attacked deep within Israel when Saul was distracted about the division between him and David, and he was chasing after David. That just gave enemy opportunity to come and strike Saul and the kingdom and God's people and the families, that is how it works. Spiritual warfare is real. The invisible war we talked about on Sunday is very real in our lives. And when we get distracted in fighting amongst ourselves and fighting against flesh and blood, which we are not to do according to Ephesians 6, but the principalities and darkness and all these other, these hierarchical demonic forces will come in into your life, into your family, and into your gatherings of, of God's people. And the Philistines were certainly used by the enemy to come in against God's people, Israel. And they penetrated very deep into the Israel uh, territory. And many of them fell, slain to, on Mount Gilboa. See, because the Philistines attacked deep within the territory that we saw back in chapter 28, Saul's army assembled, uh, prepared to go to battle with the Philistines because they left uh, David very quickly to go deal with the situation and they were coming with force. But when they come there, all of a sudden King Saul, because he was not empowered by God, he wasn't walking with God, he wasn't even focused on God, he found and he was doing his own religious kinds of way to, to seek after God. Remember, he even turned to a medium. When he could, which went to God, um, God was like, I'm done talking to you because you're not listening. You're disobedient. He turned to a medium. They talked to, 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 to dark forces to try to pull up um, uh, uh, Samuel out of the, the dead to hear and hear from him to know what to do. And you go back and read that and you find deep, deep rebellion that he was against God has resulted now that God had, is there, but he wasn't speaking to him. Which made Saul not ready for battle with the enemy. We see in verse 5 of chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled. 
And that's exactly what will happen. There will be tremendous fear in your heart. A tremendous um, uh, uh, physical reactions in your life when you're not walking with God and you sense that God's not with you because of whatever reason. And we see that you can be prey to this, this overwhelming fear and worry and trembling in one's life. Instead of taking his fear to the Lord, Saul made things worse by seeking God's voice through a spiritual medium. And strangely enough, God did speak to Saul, but he spoke words of judgment through this unusual appearance of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel told him very clearly, showed up on the scene, that's a, that's a heavy conversation with you and the Lord and me and the Lord about that moment here that God allowed Samuel to come back in an appearance of to communicate effectively and clearly to King Saul. <laughs> it wasn't what he wanted to hear. Because Samuel told Saul that he and his sons would die the next day. Here in chapter 31, verse 1, is that next day. We sometimes go from 28 to verse, uh, chapter 31 and we think of time. It's only been a day. When this all was taking place and we see that the Philistines are fighting against Israel. He needs to go and push back. He knows as king he needs to push the enemy back out. David wanted to be part of the group of the Philistines who were going to come against Israel. And God, in his power, made sure even the lords of the Philistines said, you can't come. Go back, because you can struggle with the fact, what do you mean David was going to be part of going against God's people? He was part of the enemies. Go back and study chapter 29, verses 2 and 8. Look at the language, it's very clear. There's no indication that David was looking to get out of this deal. He actually questioned, what, do you, what did I do wrong? Why can't I go? You know, God said, no, no, no. You're not going. But the men of Israel fled before, from before the Philistines, and many were slain. Remember, Gelboa is where the, Israelite, the Israeli army camped out. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 20. And it was the battle which turned so badly, they left and ran back to get to their own camp. Now verse 2, then, it, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. Meaning as people were fleeing, it appears that Saul and his uh, three of his four sons took off running a different direction. And when they left, the Philistines followed hardly after them. And the Philistines killed. We see here very clearly catching them close enough. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Saul's sons, three of his four sons. Where's the other son? We don't know yet. We don't know. His fourth son wasn't there for some reason, but three of them were. But tragically, we see here what's playing out here. Don't miss this. As Saul's sons were affected by the judgment of God against their father, Saul. Because this really is God's judgment upon Saul. He didn't, God didn't rescue Saul here. 
the brave, the worthy, the Jonathan, the loyal Jonathan was there. His son was with him all the way through this, even though this dad was wrong in so many ways. He would, Jonathan was, was, is going to die because of his dad. But he was loyally fought with God he, for, for his God, he, for his country, for his father as the king. He ended up dying. Now, the tragic death of these three sons is important in God's plan because in taking the logic heirs of Saul's throne, if Saul died, then his sons are now in line to be an heir. Well, David, God's called David. So there would be some conflict of potentially of the heirs wanting to keep the reign and not allow David to come in. So out of God's wisdom, God clearly made a way for David to become the next king of Israel by taking out three of his four sons. Now we know that if Jonathan had survived, we saw in the scriptures prior, he had already created a covenant with David and said, when you become, when my dad is out of the picture, I see you as the king because I know God has anointed you to become king. So he was willing, and I more than likely would have clearly made a way, but he had other sons that would have probably fought against that. But we see that God in his merciful ways to Jonathan actually spared him from the ordeal of having to struggle between family reigning and his, his best bud you know, uh, of David. There was also a special providence of God in taking away Jonathan and brothers preventing divisions within the the country, within the nation of Israel. And so now with David being able to make way, he can now be crowned and lead the people out of the state of chaos that the nation of Israel finds themselves in. So what happened to the fourth son? Well, we will see in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8 through chapter 4, verse 12, David had to deal with uh, Ashibbeth, uh, I think that's how you say it. His fourth son had to deal with him. Um, and so that one surviving son of Saul before taking the, the throne of Israel. In verse 3, we see the battle became fierce against Saul. And this, so it appears they, they got the sons very clearly in one part, but dad kept going with his armor bearer here. And in th- verse 3, we see that the archers hit him. So they must have been just flinging those, uh, the arrows at him. And he was severely wounded by the archers, which means he probably was hit by many arrows, not just one arrow. Because of the plurality of the archers hit him, not just one archer hit him, and severely wounded by the archers. It was a confirmation. It was probably multiple um, arrows hitting him. That's why it was a severely wounded, a fatal hit, but still alive at this point in time. We see then Saul said to his armor bearer, who is always his right hand guy carrying his armor and swords, go into battle. So this guy never left his side, the king's side. And he says to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust through me with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. 
Take my life, he's telling me. Put me out of my misery because I, I can't be alive to watch about what's going to happen to me once I get here. So what happened? But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. He killed himself. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together the same day. So when we take a look at here, the battle became so intense. Struck by many arrows knew the battle was completely lost. There was no hope. He turns to his armor bearer and pleads with him to take, just take my life. I cannot bear my, the enemy getting a hold of me. The, he knew they weren't going to get a hold of his body and just tease him. Oh, look at you. You're a pincushion. Isn't that cute? No, he, no, this is not what the kind of abuse in the language we see here. The mutilation would have been quite severe, especially if he was still alive. And so what we find here is he pleads with his armor bearer to kill him. And when he could not come to killing his king, he killed himself. Now, sad as anything was in this account, the saddest part, if you really don't miss this, He's come to the end of his life. He sees the tragedy. He knows he's going to die. He potentially could suffer even more to the enemy. Instead of crying out to God to help him, there's no word about him crying out to God in his last, last moments of life. All he can think about is getting out of his potential, well, current suffering, but also even more potential suffering. His hope was not in God. And that's really the sad part you don't want to miss here is the absence of any kind of sorrow or repentance or crying out to God at all on Saul's part to say, God, forgive me. Nothing. Just put me on my misery, please. It was told in the previous day. It was only been 24 hours in 1 Samuel 28, 19 that he was going to die. And it doesn't appear, based on his response that the word is given, at any point did he seem to prepare his soul to meet God in any way. At the end of his life, Saul became so hard in his sin and so hard in his rebellion and stiff-neckedness and his ways that he did not want to repent and cry out to God. Many people, I've heard it, many people, over the many years. Put off getting right with God. They know about God. They knew, used to know God really well, but they've kind of strayed. In, they, they, just, they, they put off getting right with God until a later time when they feel like it. Assuming they will still want to get right with God when it needs a most desperate time at the end of your life. But this is a very dangerous mindset the enemy, I think, sets in people's minds. You have time. You get time. Just keep going. You'll, you'll find you later on you can get right with God. 
But that's a very dangerous assumption because repentance is a gift from God. And if it is here today, it should be received today. How do you know you have a guarantee for tomorrow to receive it? So it is very sad, very deeply solemn thought here. His life and his career out of just bringing him out of this, this, this small tribe of Benjamin, this small family, and at least in the family, and God raised him up and anointed him to be king of, of Israel. I mean, what a beautiful, bright future this man had. A calling of God in his life, and he chose to not really follow God's way and started rebelling. None could come closer than a very dark ending of despair at the end of their life because they did not, he did not continue to obey and listen and follow God. But we must take note of that, should we not? How God can bring us out of darkness and give us and put us on the path to walk with him and, and a bright future. To be about God's purpose in our lives that he has for us. And we can come back to, into selfishness in such a, such, a, such a way that we think we can just dial our life however we want to. Go where we want to, live however we want to. Call out to God when we want to, when we need, desperately need Him, just like Saul used to. But that same fate that happened to Saul could happen to us if we're not very careful. A fate befalling us unless we watch and pray and walk humbly with our God. We're at great risk. Saul served 40 years. 40 years. How do we know that? Go back and you'll see that note in Acts chapter 13 verse 21. But it's sad here when we talk about the armor bearer. Not only the sons are involved in this. The armor bearer is involved in this. We'll see in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verses 4 through 10. An Amalekite shows up at David's doorstep. With a report that Saul had died in battle and that he actually is the one that delivered the death blow to Saul. The Amalekite shows up. The king, now going into King David. This Amalekite statement appears flat out lied to David. He's saying, I'm the one that killed King Saul. I'm the one who can prove that I was right there. No, 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 no. He was trying to find favor in David, thinking that David was going to say, Congrat- thank you for taking King Saul out. Thank you for making a way for me to become king. Oh, I'm so glad you're... No. He quickly found out well, when we get to there, that was not the right thing for him to do. He told David he killed him. Because he thought David would be pleased and be rewarded. But we will find out when we get to that point. That's not how it played out. Verse 7, we see this significant defeat upon Israel here. Look at, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. 
And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. When things got difficult, when the enemy, the darkness, seems to be coming across the land, they could see it was coming. The Philistines were coming for them next. They didn't stand up and turn to God and ask for God. They just like, okay, the king's gone. Jonathan's gone. All the sons are gone. All the, every, who's going to help us? They just flee. The victory of the Philistines was so huge, so complete on the other side. Now the other side of the Jordan, the other side of the valley, they could see what was going to happen. It was like drawing a line from west to east. There was just a clear indication the Philistines had a strategic plan to come across and conquer all of Israel. And when they took off, the Philistines came in and took over the cities, took over everything they had. They They forsook everything and they came in and took over all the things that God had given his people. And this was a great defeat. When the king, the leader, King Saul, was struck, it spread like a panic across God's people. Why? Because they saw there was a void in leadership. And when there's a void in leadership, people will flee. Jesus knew this principle, the same same principle. He taught it in Mark chapter 14, verse 27. He spoke against... I mean, to his disciples about this, when he said, when, when we read here, we said, when Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Saul was struck. The people started scattering. Saul's sin, his hard rebellion, Eventually ruined, impacted, affected far more than himself and his, even his own family. It literally endangered the entire nation of Israel. And this is why if you're in a position of leadership, if God's called you in a position of leadership, you must be on guard. Why? Because what, leaders have a higher responsibility. Because their fall can endanger many more people than the fall of someone who is not a leader. If you're not a leader, you'll fall. It might be just you and your family. Yes, we'll be impacted. But if you're a leader of some place in some organizations or within a church, if you fall, you take many with you. And that is why the New Testament openly presents a higher standard for leaders in the church Even saying to the point, you must be blameless for just cause before the world and God's people. We see that qualifications in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.6. In verse 8, we see now the disgrace of coming upon. That the Philistines are going to have a heyday to disgrace King Saul and in the nation of Israel. We see here in verse 8, so it happened the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, because remember, you they killed them, and then eventually they come back around. They take all their clothes, all the, the any weapons and any anything and loot that they can take. They're going to take the the booty. 
And the Philistines came to strip the slain, and that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they, they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So we see here in these verses 8 through 10, this is what Saul knew would happen if he was alive when they showed up. Saul's tragic death gave opportunity for the enemy. When the leader falls, it gives opportunity to the enemy. And here are the enemies of the Lord to disgrace his name, God's name, because of this. Because now Saul, who represented God's people and God himself, Saul's death was used to glorify pagan gods and to mock the living God. Do you see how important it is that we live lives that are blameless? That are lives that are honoring of God. Because if you say and proclaim you are a follower of Jesus, you love Jesus and you're saved, you're born again, you're a believer, I'm a church goer. Any of those tags that you want, lack of a better word here in a moment, tags that from the worldly perspective that you are a Christian because you say these things, but then you walk like the world and you do the worldly things and you go find yourselves down and people look at going, I'm not a God, I'm not a Christian, but I know enough. You're not supposed to be doing any of these things. You become a you're glorifying the enemy's position of why he's like that. See, that's why you don't want to become a Christian. And it also turns into the mocking of our living God. That's your Jesus? You say it changes lives? Look at how they're living. That's exactly what was happening here. So they took his head, took his armor, took his body, took all. We find even his sons later on here. But they see that they fastened it up on a wall in Bethshan because they wanted to make a spectacle of him so that everyone walking by, they see that their God is a mightier God. They're more powerful than the people of Israel. And that was the ultimate insult against Saul here. Because in that culture, to have your stripped dead body treated this way was considered the worst fate of ever and how you were to die. They even take his armor, all this power, and, and use it as showing that the temple of the Asteros, that they're, that that's nothing compared to their God. When we get to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 10, it says that there, that they took his head and hung it in the temple of Dagon. And today, if you go to Israel, and you happen to be able to go to the ruins of Bashan, as the foundations to the city sit 
high on a hill overlooking that Roman ruins destroyed in the earthquake. It was high on that hill that the Philistines hung the decapitated corpse of King Saul in the ultimate humiliation. Where's Bashan? It's east of Mount Gilibo, right where the junction of the Jezreel Valley, Valley of Armageddon, and the Jordan Valleys. Right there at the place where people go up and down for the trade routes and everything north to south. And because of Saul's sins, it started, remember, in chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, when he lost his destiny, because his dynasty, I should say. He lost his dynasty because of his rebellion against, against God, his disobedience. Then the kingdom was snatched from him in chapter 15, verses 24 through 31. And now finally he lost his crown. And that was all warned, even, even is warned to all of us even today in Revelation, when we're studying Revelation. Remember that warning in chapter 3, verse 11? It says, Behold, I come quickly. What does that mean? I come quickly because hold fast of what you have in God. Hold fast. No one may take your crown. You have to hold on to it, the scripture says. Second John chapter one, verse eight. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. We want all that God wants to give us. Let's be obedient and to, to do, just be obedient and humbly walk with our God. Or we're at risk of losing reward. And even worse, bring defeat and disgrace. Not only in your life and your family life, but even in the, the body of Christ. We must be very careful. Verse 11 through 13. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we see here there's still a remnant of valiant men. Why these valiant men? Of Jabesh Gilead. Why? Why did all the, where were they when they were going to go against the Philistines? Where were all the, again, not all the war was able to, of the Philistines. They still had to protect part of the lands. But these valiant men came to a point and saw what was happening of the defeat and the disgrace and the loss and the tragedy that happened not only to King Saul, but to the nation of, of Israel. And God still had these valiant men to rise up to do his work. What did he do? Well, these men of Jebesh Gilead traveled 15 to 20 miles, a force marched overnight to get to where these bodies of Saul and his sons were. 
And they get there and they were able to somehow, we don't have the details of how much fighting or what, or they were able to at night come in secretly and get the bodies and bring them down. It doesn't talk about a war or anything to get them, but somehow they had to go and conquer and move or do something to get in there and get those bodies. And when they got those bodies, they took them to Jabesh and burned them so that they would have a proper burial bearing, but also so that the enemy couldn't get their bodies and put them back up on the walls or do anything with their bodies. And then they took the bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And they then fasted, mourned, and grieved for seven days. Why did these men do this? Why did they force march 15 to 20 miles, put their lives at risk against an army of the Philistines potentially to get king, a dead, dead bodies? Well, if you remember in the scripture, these valiant men are also had great gratitude toward King Saul because 40 years prior, 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, 40 years prior, Saul's very first public deed, God called him to go do what? Go save the people from the uh, Ammonites. Go save these people, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, from the enemy. And they never forgot that King Saul came and saved them from the Ammonites. So they repaid the kindness God showed them from the hand of Saul. Now they go and get the bodies, properly take care of them, bury them, preserve them back where their home is in Jabesh. Because they never forgot what King Saul, that God used King Saul to do to protect their lives. And how else do we know that even King David saw this was good? Because upon when David took the throne, he rightly took these valiant men and showed kindness to them because of their memory of Saul, Jonathan, and Saul's other sons. We see, we'll see that in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Later, David had Saul's and Jonathan's bones exhumed and reburied in Benjamin in chapter 2 or yeah second Samuel chapter 21 verses 11 through 14 we see that David when he heard that Saul had died in war David did not rejoice in fact he mourned and and composed a song in honor of Saul and Jonathan. Do you know that song? You find it in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. It's called the Song of the Bow. In spite of all that Saul did against David, David spoke well of Saul even after his death. No, no point did he look at this as a victory for him to finally become king.
It's choosing this kind of heart that David is displaying is truly an example of a man after God's own heart. You don't rejoice in another man's fall. It showed that the years in the wilderness experience that God allowed David to go through, these wilderness experiences of escaping Saul <laughs> and the spears being thrown and trying to peg you against the wall. All of the, of the dark moments. These weren't just a moment. These were years of difficulty. Of someone you served. David served him by playing the harp and, and calming his soul and, and helping him and being right there for him. Taking out Goliath so that it wouldn't take out the nation of Israel. All these great things that God was doing through David's life. And even with all of that, Saul was still trying to take his life all those years. But it didn't allow, David did not allow bitterness to set, settle in his heart. Because he knew God was in control. And God will deal with it. That's how you, you, you combat bitterness in your heart. You let God deal with it. And you let God deal with it. a person or persons or whatever the situation is causing a heart to get bitter. But all this wilderness experience, trying to escape Saul, were years. But God was using those years in the wilderness to train David up to be a king over God's people. Who had a man, a person who had a God's own heart. His heart was right to lead God's people. Despite even his sin... David never followed that same tragic footsteps of an example of King Saul. He learned from him. He never copied him. And he never did what Saul did. We will see the story continue in the book of Samuel, which we call 2 Samuel, the next time we gather. Father, we again thank you and praise you for your word this evening. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us through the life of other people that we can learn from, not to make the same mistakes, not to choose to go down the same paths as, as Saul did, but also we can learn from David of some of the things. He's made some mistakes going into enemy territory, dwelling with the enemies, doing what the enemy's doing, Lord, and may us, we not do that. Let us learn from David as well, the things not to do, but also having a heart after after yours, Lord, that it would be not one of any bitterness, but one of trusting in you with our lives. May we trust you, Lord. Wherever we find ourselves right now, in our lives, may we trust you, Lord. Help us, Lord, and let us not our lives fall in defeat and disgrace in any form or fashion. But if that's where we find ourselves in defeat and disgrace, Lord, do we know by coming and turning to you, you can lift us up out of all that miry clay, out of that darkness, out of that disgraceful place we find ourselves in bad choices. Lord, you can lift us up out of that if we choose to follow you. In Jesus' name.
Amen, amen, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful night.